In terms of how to pick your battles, for me, it's been the overlap of the strengths of my organizations with the strengths of my values, essentially, or my convictions and certain values. And again, it was like through that trial and error, I've learned plenty as well. So the core learning there is that you shouldn't be afraid to fail as a design leader either. Welcome back to another episode of Design to Be Conversation presented by Design to Be and hosted by Design to Be co-founder and CEO, me, Rachel Weissman. In this show, I have conversations with design leaders about how they continue to learn, grow, and skill build throughout their careers. Each episode will not only help you navigate your career more effectively, but they will even enable you to build better products as a result. Let's dive into it. In this episode, I chat with Renato Valdez. Renato is an executive angel investor and advisor with over two decades of experience, serving millions of customers worldwide. He's built products, brands, and organizations in various industries, including artificial intelligence, transportation, healthcare, and productivity tools. Most recently, he served as VP of product at Pitch and head of design at Grammarly, and is currently focusing on being a dad and investor. We dive into the most important lessons he's learned throughout his career, how his career has evolved from a designer to an executive, to being involved in the investment space, and even the most transformational experience of his life. Welcome, Renato, to the show. Hey, Rachel. It's great to be here. So I'm super excited to dive into these topics. And when we were chatting a bit of what we wanted to discuss, we landed on this overall theme of uh, transitions in one's career. And uh, for me personally, as someone who has started her career in an agency, has done startup work, worked in big tech, and I'm now on my own personal founder journey. I very much resonate with the ebbs and flows and shifts that come in place. So maybe um, we can start off just giving a little bit of color into uh, maybe turning back the clock a bit. Could you share the first moment when you decided you wanted to become a designer? See, for me, it's like design is so ingrained in my life that it's hard to tell whether it was a specific moment of output or like a moment of play. When I think back and think about, you know, like what one would consider traditional actions of design or traditional, you know, it's like the things that you would do with design, I think it would be designing like CD covers of CD-ROMs and compact discs that I would burn for the kids in my high school class, you know, it's like MP3 CDs and, and whatnot. I think that is probably the first outlet where I, you know, it's like was applying graphic design skills to anything. But when I think even before that, I had kind of an obsession with like city sims and like uh, civilization sims and like building out big structures it's like cities and organizations so there's always been something like that there already but yeah doing some you know like nefarious not exactly legal activities with design is, uh, is, is what it started with amazing so uh, after making these cds <laughs> and uh, gifting or selling to folks i don't know how soon your entrepreneurial journey started what did your the first really arc of your design career look like? 
Yeah, yeah, no, let's call it gifting indeed. Um, <laughs> uh, gifted, gifted a lot of CDs to uh, to folks over time. No, I mean, it's like there was definitely it's like a, an entrepreneurial little bit there. But I started developing my graphic design skills, and soon that moved from you know it's like CDs to business cards, flyers, posters, and as I you know it's like improved my IC skills, if you will. I started, you know, it's like developing additional interests. You know, it's like this is also a very exciting time for, for computers and personal computing in general. You know, it's like it was very fortunate that we had a machine in our house this early on. Tinkering with that, doing a little bit of coding, building websites, the combination of that plus graphic design really triggered an interest in, you know, it's like what's beyond these tactical skills, if you will, you know, it's like, are there any mental frameworks behind it? And even, you know, it's like at the time, I think I was around 17, 18 at the time, really trying to figure out, you know, it's like, Hey, where I'm going to go to, to university, where I'm going to go to college, what I'm going to do with these things. And I found, or rather my father at the time found interaction design, which is a program at the Utrecht School of the Arts back in the days. It was in a building that was not even a Utrecht. It was in a town next to Utrecht called Hilversum, where the media center or entertainment center of the Netherlands is. I'm originally Dutch. And there... It was a bit of a, an obscure part of the school, I would say, but there it was interaction design. And the thing that caught my eye there, or the person that caught my eye, was uh, uh, there was this one legendary guy that came from that particular education. His name was, uh, or is, Boss Ording. He's on the patent of the Mac OS X dock with Steve Jobs, one of the main designers of that, or the designer of that. And back in those days, I had such a fascination and obsession with user interface design. So that was the thing that I wanted to do. Ultimately, interaction design was a lot more about, you know, it's like cognition, cognitive psychology, really it's like a lot of science behind user interface design. And that combination of both, you know, it's like strong theoretical frameworks and, you know, it's like graphic design and, uh, and aesthetics, if you will, really attracted me and uh, ended up doing that or ended up getting a master's, uh, a master's in that, uh, in that specifically. Let's see, my senior or at least my, my master's year program or project. So this was a year where they put all students together in groups. The first group you couldn't assemble uh, or you couldn't assemble yourself as students. You were literally just like picked and put in a group. Um, and they kind of did this deliberately to kind of weed out folks that would take, you know, it's like more assertive leadership positions versus folks that would do more individual contributions. Uh, they would really try to you know, like naturally shape teams or make sure that communication and collaboration skills would flex a little bit more among students. So the first project that I did there was design a, a cow's butt, which was a really interesting project. This was the Utrecht School of Veterinary Medicine approached my design school and I said, hey, we have this issue with our uh, with our students. You know, it's like they need to go into these practical sessions where they need to study bovine anatomy, essentially, and bovine reproduction anatomy specifically. Now, the process to investigate that is literally, you know, it's like roll up your sleeves, put on a latex glove, put lube, and enter a cow from the rear. And then, you know, it's like try to touch that on the inside, uh, the reproductive system. Now, as you see, it's, it's, it's a pretty, you know, it's like interesting, interesting topic. And for these students, you know, it's like who were mostly educated through books to that point, you know, it's like it was really 
a wild experience as well. Uh, not to mention for cows, you know, it's like not the most animal friendly experience either. So they had a set of core problems there and they said, it's like, hey, could you come up with a, a solution for this? So my team ended up producing this, this haptic cow interface where we had, you know, it's like silicone rubber organs connected to this visualization, 3D visualization where, uh, where folks could, you know, it's like use this device to see what they were actually touching and preparing them much better for a future in, uh, in, in bovine veterinary medicine. That was a crazy project. The second project that I did there was more of a, uh, a, a little company or startup that we actually built. We, we designed this little hardware device that could exchange a couple of bits and bytes through a NFC connection at the time. And, uh, you know, so we built a couple of prototypes of these things and we connected it to this online service that collect your, you know, it's like your Twitter, your LinkedIn, your social networking uh, accounts. And when you press the devices together, they exchange a little digital business card. Yeah, we designed this project and it was such a success on its launch that, you know, it's like Gizmodo approached us at the time, which was like a huge tech blog and it turned into a thing. And then people told us, hey, maybe you should turn this into a company. And from that moment on, I started thinking, okay, it's like, whatever we really turned this into a company and ended up doing that. So let's continue on with the story. What, <laughs> what happened within this startup? Who was on your team? What did you learn from working in this startup environment? And did you have any hesitations of going right into working in a startup? Or did you have other ideas of, oh, hey, maybe I wanted to work at a company out of school and it felt like a very seamless transition. I'm curious. <laughs> I'm happy. I'm happy to continue there. Yeah, no, the transition of, you know, it's like physical interfaces to, you know, it's like what I'm mostly known for throughout my career went, is, is a long transition, I would say. You know, it's like we worked on these types of devices at the time because that was, you know, it's like the best technology available for the job at the time. I mean, for, for the cow interface, of course, like we had to do like that entire thing from scratch. And it was like a, a huge hack that turned into, it's an actual product now that's being used across universities across the world. But yeah, for the little physical business card device project, you know, it's like this was just the time before iPhones, before, you know, it's like smartphones that had, you know, it's like app capabilities and app store ecosystems. So that was the best thing that we could do uh, at the time. And it was super hard, you know, it was like as we transitioned into becoming a company, you know, I was like, this was when I think about how far we got with the limited amount of knowledge that we had. Uh, I really think it's like, it's absolutely wild. But yeah, the team at the time consisted of yeah, a couple of fellow students. And, you know, it was like, I wasn't at a point in my career either where I was thinking very much about, it's like, hey, a team needs to be carefully selected and interviewed and, and, and whatnot. No, these are just, you know, it's like a bunch of folks that happened to study together and came together and, um, you know, it was like had complementary skills. That is something that we saw. But starting off a hardware venture was extremely hard at the time. You know, it was like none of us had any experience in starting businesses, any big wallets or, you know, it was like money that we could get started with. You know, it's like everything happened through trial and error. Um, we were fortunate enough to, you know, it was like get kickstarted 
at the university. Then we joined a you know, like startup incubator very early on, gave away a ton of equity for that, which you know, it's like crippled the company for any future investment rounds, which we didn't know. It's like at the time, we were just happy to join an accelerator. But yeah, that was really just like a lot of uh, a lot of trial and error. Uh, raised some money for that company, almost started manufacturing hardware, but ultimately ended up switching the whole technology to an app once the iPhone came out. Once we saw that presentation of the App Store, we decided to axe all hardware and shifted the entire company to building software. And from that moment on, you know, it's like my career really started being defined by you know, like the iPhone as like core interface to maj- the majority of services or marketplaces that I've built. And that was, you know, it was like, I think being present at the moment where, you know, it's like that ecosystem became live, allowed me as a designer, uh, I think, and as a like growing design leader to really like specialize my knowledge in, you know, it's like design for the iPhone specifically within Apple's user interface guidelines. And I think, you know, it's like the opportunity there a lot for a really strong base of design, which is still, you know, it's like still very relevant. That company, we ended up calling it CarCloud. We raised some funding from amazing folks in tech and kept building, but we did not succeed with that company because as a founder, I was just way too inexperienced. I was a better designer at the time than I was a founder. It was, I had a hard time making hard decisions, had a hard time, you know, it's like letting people go at the right time or, or making sure that we got funding in at the right time even it was really like a huge learning curve for me but it did prepare me much better for the thing that i did after that which is start a company called human which is a little bit better known i'd say than uh, than car cloud human was a health and fitness app it was one of the first apps that would do passive tracking. So we would use the, the sensory input of the iPhone plus location triangulation to essentially detect what kind of activity you were doing at the time, categorizing that in like four activities, walking, cycling, running, and stationary activity. And uh, yeah, it was one of the first apps that drained your battery really, really quickly. And uh, that's what it uh, I became known for in the, in the beginning. But as a company, we were able to get almost like a mass, a really good amount of users. One of the best things that I learned there was how difficult it is to, you know, like get to that hockey stick curve of growth. And once you get there, you know, it's like it goes really fast, but then maintaining it, making sure that there's retention, you know, like all kinds of different problems that were thrown at me uh, at the time, which we all, again, like learned through trial and error. So Human is a company that we built out as a, as a remote team over, at least for the time that I was there, it's like for about four years before I decided to move to the U.S. and uh, continue my career as an operator instead of a startup founder. Came to a point where I would say both the strain and learning curves of being a founder for, you know, it's like a good eight years really attracted me to become a better operator and learn how to succeed in, you know, it's like really amazing technology environments. And through my upbringing as a designer, uh, if you will, I'd always been fascinated with the Bay Area. And, you know, it's like, to me was the the epicenter of, of, of technology. So going there was a pretty logical move for me at the time. Yeah, I'd say we both definitely had a, a similar pull to the Bay. One question before we dive into that chapter. So you you mentioned in the first startup that you were working on hardware. And then there was the boom of the iPhone, which made you completely shift what y'all were doing into this new space. 
I think equally right now, we're also in a an interesting shift, uptick, renaissance of uh, so much that's happening with technology that's making folks question, ooh, do I want to work on that? And so I'm curious, one, uh, do you resonate with that? And two, uh, what was the uh, kind of like mental model for you to be like, okay, we're just going to go for it and step into this new domain? Because I feel like a lot of folks who are curious to uh, possibly work in, uh, whether it be Web3, AI, et cetera, how they can apply that same thinking. So, uh, Andy, we're in a super interesting space right now. Lots of transitions happening. I think artificial intelligence and machine learning is, is definitely one of the, the most interesting spaces for me, specifically, having worked at Grammarly for quite some time. You know, it's like it's one of the leading companies when it comes to providing utility through AI and machine learning, in my opinion. But before that, the transition from you know, it was like physical devices to iPhone at the time. I think I just remember it as a magical, as a magical moment. It was kind of, um, everybody's kind of surprised, I think, in a way that that technology came about and it was so strong and so, so magical. At the same time, it had been a while coming as well. You know, it's like multi-touch technology it was something that had been demoed and existed years before the iPhone, I remember. His name Jeff Hahn that had amazing demos on, on YouTube of multi-touch, of large multi-touch displays that showcased, you know, it's like how we would interact with screens in the future. And I think Apple was able to package, you know, it's like that magical interaction into the perfect form factor through iPhones and iPads. And you know, it's like partially really understanding as a designer, oh wow, this platform is significantly different from anything else out there. And, and as a designer, I had been working on, you know, it was like other mobile platforms at the time, you know, it was like I'd had designed software or, or websites for NTT Docomo's uh, platform at the time. And, you know, it was like that mobile web technology or those phones were just light years behind what Apple had come up with at the time. So it was, it was exciting. In addition to that, it was clear that Apple was going to back this as a business as well. So it made a lot of sense at the time. I think right now the developments are more I would say it's like the big developments are more in software. And I think gigantic breakthroughs on the hardware front, I think, um, you know, it's like will be coming in the form of quantum computing, but we're still a few years away from that ever being, you know, like useful to us mere mortals. But yeah, the transition right now is like with AI and Web3, I think is very interesting to me from a, you know, it's like building blocks perspective, uh, Web3 is super interesting, but the NFT train, for example, was completely lost on me. So there, you know, it's like I've uh, I've seen a lot of designers, you know, it's like thinking about their careers overall and whether, you know, it's like working on Web2 projects, Web2 companies, social networking, productivity tools, as they are moving to the frontier of, you know, it's like technology it is always an interesting space. I think as a designer, huge challenge to shape something out of nothing, essentially, which is what's happening with AI and ML. We've seen that at Grammarly, the design team at Grammarly was faced with, you know, it's like the challenge to build something that didn't exist before. So all of these designers are kind of, you know, it's like, it was like artists, in my opinion, as well, really exploring new frontiers where you kind of have a hard time building upon, you know, like anything that's out there already, because many of these technologies also exist because they kind of want to disrupt what's happened and how things have been built before. 
We are going to take a short break to hear an exciting update from Design to Be. Design to Be has been researching and ideating on a digital product. We're super excited about what's in the works, but we need your help. We are looking to chat with heads of design, design managers, and IC designers to better understand the design process at your organization. If you are open for a 30-minute call with me and or Design to Be's co-founder and CTO, Keith Stevens, head to designtobe.com forward slash app to join our waitlist. That's D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E dot com forward slash A-P-P. After adding your name to the waitlist, we'll then follow up via email. Over a short call, we'll share what we're building, get your feedback, and learn more about your team's design process. These calls directly impact the future of what we're building at Design to Be. So thank you for your support, and we're excited to continue to build Design to Be together. Now, back to the show. So... You made it to the Bay Area. What was your first role upon getting to the Bay? I joined a little startup called Honor. We were called Sona at the time. Let's see, I was introduced through a former competitor of mine, the guy that ran Bump, which was a big competitor to my, my business card startup app thing. And he introduced me to uh, the startup called Sona. He said, you should talk to them. They're looking for a great designer. And I was like, well, Let's see if they uh, want to talk to me. But that ended up being a very, uh, very awesome choice. I joined as, you know, like I would say is like the the fifth leadership person there building out a design organization from scratch, essentially over the, over a course of four years. And our mission was really, really special. We essentially set out to redesign senior care for the United States. And that was something that really felt like an ikigai moment for me, if you will. It's like it had a really strong core of, you know, it was like social good. It was, you know, it was like a well-backed tech company and had a crazy amount of really senior talent on board. And so for me, you know, it was like just landing in the Bay. It was a fantastic opportunity to learn and really grow quickly with this company. Like I said, it's like we really started from scratch, but we had fantastic means available to us as well. We raised a a seed or an A round of 20 million at the time, which was, was really huge. And I was on the team, on the team alone, consisted of a team of, you know, it was like four really experienced founders that had multiple exits on their name already. And joining that team really allowed me to flex both my skills as a designer. The main skill that I applied there was service design uh, as we did design a marketplace with multiple channels like user interfaces, multiple input components, if you will. So the skills that I gained there came very fast and were very, very diverse. We started off with a small team of leaders and, and engineers, essentially. It's like figuring out the core interactions of the service. And the problem space that we were in uh, was really complex as well. And you know, it's like none of us really had a background in, in healthcare or senior care, if you will. But many of us had experiences either through our parents or our or our grandparents that were in need of medical or non-medical home care. Uh, we started out with non-medical home care, but the acknowledgement and the understanding that none of us came from that environment really, you know, it's like served that as 
good piece of humble pie and for us to understand that we had to do more than do wireframes and sit behind our screens and, and, and code all day in order to understand this problem space. So we ended up signing up as volunteer caregivers, started working with older adults in San Francisco, running shifts, doing in-home care visits. And the activities that we did there range from, you know, like helping people up out of bed or, or from their sofa to changing light bulbs to doing some grocery shopping to, you know, like scrubbing down a bathroom. And what we tried to understand was, hey, you know, I was like, as a caregiver, when are the moments when I can appropriately access my phone and, you know, I was like input some things, for example, because one of the core visions was that we had an app at the center of care, which is the caregiver and the person delivering care to the older adult, which could connect to the family um, as well. And so it's like many times, you know, it's like the families are partially involved in, uh, in care or live a couple of states away and still want to be connected to what's happening in the home. So that was really, really helpful for us to understand the space and to build great empathy with the problem space, also the folks involved in this problem space, specifically the caregivers going out to do that, uh, to do that job. So yeah, we built that platform. We built the products, uh, products for the uh, for the family, for the caregivers, for medical systems, and slowly started becoming. You know, it was like the fastest growing home care company in the United States, which is really really fantastic. And my team grew from myself to a handful of product and brand designers to you know, it was like folks in you know, it was like photography, brand operations, or it was like ops uh, research. And after four years, you know, it's like there was a big design org all of a sudden, and uh, I had really grown as a design leader. So it was a, an amazing way for me to land and, and learn immediately how to be a good operator in the Bay. What was one of the main things that you learned about going from a, a founding solo designer to growing a team? A lot of things that I cared about before didn't matter anymore. I think that's a big trend or a big pattern that I've seen in transitions in all of my transitions. I think, you know, it was like, you really need to understand as a designer when to apply perfectionism, for example. I think it's like lots of design leaders that start out as individual contributors have a hard time letting go of this specifically and then have a hard time really scaling their organization because it's very hard to scale that quality. So understanding where to let things go and where to apply pressure, for example, was a skill that I really needed to flex and learned how to flex there. And the important thing, or at least like the foundation that I was standing on was that I had, you know, it was like two companies that I founded before that. And even little like design agency that I haven't even mentioned that really taught me, you know, it's like the basics of running a business and did like a little mini MBA, if you will, you know, it's like understanding how payroll and, you know, it's like your overall budget has, you know, it's like a tremendous impact on everything, everything that you do. And I think that, you know, it's like understanding that learning how companies change over time and, and what is important means that the design function had to flex in the same, in the same way as well. And I think there, uh, yeah, again, letting things go is one of the most important things. So I went through, it was like many cycles that you've, that I've seen with many folks nowadays as well. You know, it's like having a hard time letting work go, picking the wrong battles. I've made all of those mistakes and through trial and error, you know, it's like uh, figured out, it's like, Hey, this is how you really need to flex a design organization over time as a company grows. And through that, so I also found that my interests as a designer 
kept changing and kept kept evolving. And I was like really moved from aesthetics to interaction to services and, you know, it was like larger systems to, you know, I was like, what constitutes of an amazing team? And once you have that team, you know, how does it grow into an organization? And, and what are the, the things that, that return in organizations at scale? And, you know, like, what are the things that are pointers of quality in an organization, uh, in an organization at scale. I think many of those things I did not necessarily know going into that challenge, but coming out, I had extremely strong opinions about what they should look like and how they should work. One more question in this sphere. How can folks determine what to let go and what battles to lean into? And, uh, for the managers listening who are in the process of growing their team, what are the signals that they should be looking for to continue to evolve their team and grow? I think what's important is always to remain extremely pragmatic about the position that your function has within the context of the business. I think the proximity that you have to the founding team or the core power structures within a company is extremely important because that's where the most accurate information comes from and the most up-to-date information comes from. And understanding how the business is really going and what the current objectives are will help you be successful as a design leader. The step after that, after knowing what the company's main priorities are, is you know, it's like how the strengths of your organization specifically tie into those needs. So where if you consider you know, like the organization or an organism, if you will, where can it deliver that value for the org? And then in terms of how to pick your battles connected to that, for me, it's been the overlap of the strengths of my organizations with the strengths of my values, essentially, or, or my convictions and certain values. So in the beginning of my, my leadership career, a lot of that was, you know, I was like really pushing for top-notch aesthetics and the highest quality photography that we can get our hands on. And, you know, I was like, to a certain extent, that was really important. But overall, I think the battles that I ended up fighting more were more you know, it's like to protect my organizations, to protect the right, or to protect great work that designers actually uh, actually want to do. So I think there is, you know, it's like some direction of how I've picked my battles, but I've picked a ton of wrong battles as well. You know, it's like with folks that were way more experienced than me in specific topics. And, you know, it's like through that trial and error, I've, I've learned plenty as well. So the core learning there is that you shouldn't be afraid to fail as a design leader either. So I'm curious now about the moment or moments when you started to shift from being a designer and operator into more of an executive role and, and what that looked like. That arc happened at Honor already. I had to really, you know, it's like in order to make sure that the design function remained relevant, I had to, you know, like scale my leadership skills significantly. So I started working with leadership coaches, with executive coaches to understand, you know, I was like, hey, whether the most important traits or skills or it's like how do how do folks at this level even communicate? That helped me a lot. But it wasn't until, you know, I was like I got several layers of folks underneath me where it started becoming really, really relevant. Uh, and you started understanding, hey, you know, it's like you need to define your own cadence. And, you know, it's like coming into an executive role, for example, or if you're applying to an executive role, 
or like a, a VP of design role, for example, understanding that you're not just negotiating your own package. You should be negotiating the packages of your leadership team coming in, for example. These are the type of things that I had to flex, that I had to come to understand in order to become, you know, it's like a more seasoned operator through all of my jobs, essentially. I think all of that culminated in the best way, I think, at Grammarly, where the team was exceptionally small for the age of the company or the stage of the company uh, at the time. But the needs for the organization were like really significant. And there was change management necessary, but also it was like rapid growth of an entire organization. So I think there is like the biggest lesson for me as an executive has been Actually, it's like scaling down the amount of work that I did. So moving from, you know, it's like a head of design, if you will, into like a true, it's like VP level role where you like manage uh, a range of directors who, who manage uh, a range of managers, understanding what you can do as an exec and what you can't do is really important. I would say it was like or the, the biggest lesson that I've learned. For Grammarly in particular, it was, you know, it was like, very rapid hiring, extremely fast. It's the fastest that I've ever hired a team, the fastest that I've ever grown a team. And understanding that that was the biggest challenge also meant that I just like continuously have to communicate that to the rest of the leadership team that, you know, it's like in periods of high growth, it's very hard to do anything else, to focus on anything else. So setting appropriate expectations around it's like a limited scope of work is probably one of the most important lessons that I've learned in a transition of, you know, it's like, a more generalist manager to, you know, it's like an executive level uh, manager. And more than anything, communication and empathy from my perspective are it's like the most important skills, uh, I would say, for any designer working in today's world, but specifically for leaders. And then for my flavor of leadership specifically, I think uh, having deep compassion for the folks that you work with is something that I find important. A lot of folks and uh, designers specifically enter this space, this field with really great convictions and strong sets of values and the hopes of, you know, it's like really finding meaningful work. But I've seen, you know, it's like many folks really, you know, like hurt by stepping into roles in that way and really hurt by companies by not adjusting their expectations. I think, you know, it's like having real compassion for the folks that are doing amazing work is also uh, an important trait. I really resonate with all of what you said, but uh, especially the communication piece of really noting, hey, this is something that's really top of mind. And this is what's a more or less like a, a hard point for me, whether it be hiring and this is taking a lot of capacity and just creating that transparency of uh okay, this is where my energy is going, but also noting I'm, I'm here for you is uh, just something that I've seen uh, really help strengthen uh, the connected tissue of teams and just allow folks to ultimately then create better work. Yeah, absolutely. I think compassion is at the core of strong organizations and strong teams. It's hard for heads of design to prioritize as well. It's like these roles are, they're really big they're generally, as like companies still under scope, the resources for these roles significantly. But I think, you know, it's like if there's one thing that has paid off in terms of prioritization, it's supporting the teams really, really deeply. Especially if you, I think, are planning a longer career in design, making sure that you treat folks the way that you like to be treated yourself is going to help you down the line significantly. Before we wrap up, I want to touch on a, a couple more aspects of your journey, because I think it will really resonate with folks. So... One is uh, 
you mentioned you're currently on sabbatical. So can you give a little bit of color into this chapter and how you're navigating it? And you also mentioned you're a father. And so what's woven in that camp with that, that sabbatical? And then maybe ending with a little sprinkle of uh, what's next on your horizon in this arc of your career. For everybody, uh, in all honesty, you know, it's like the past couple of years have been, you know, it's like really difficult and uh, for many folks, transformational as well. For me and for my partner, it started throughout the beginning of the pandemic and really thinking about where we were and how we wanted to spend our time and made the decision to move closer to family as my partner became pregnant. Becoming a father, yeah, has been, you know, it's like the most transformational experience in my life, honestly. Moving from a very selfish life where you can, you know, it's like do anything that you that you please to a suddenly becoming a father and and you know, it's like understanding that your life is no longer yours. That has been huge for me. And uh, it has been difficult as well. You know, it's like I was definitely one of those guys that in our early 20s was, you know, it's like deeply indoctrinated by hustle culture and you know it's like working my butt off weeks on end pulling like so many overnighters and creating you know it's like very difficult cultures for folks as well and thinking about that versus you know it's like where i am right now and you know it's like some of the great examples that i've had through parent colleagues you know it's like different experiences that i've been in really just like rethinking how I spend my time has been a massive topic. And yeah, it's like a lot of these, a lot of these rules, I think specifically when it comes to becoming an operator require a lot from leaders. These are not things that you can do on a part-time basis. These are not things that you can just um, wrap up. Your your mind will keep rattling on and there will always be, it's like a, a next thing. So implementing strong boundaries is something that I think is really important if you want to have like a, a long career. And with my son coming into our life, you know, thinking about how I dedicate my time and how much I spend on work, how much I want to spend on work versus how much I want to spend on really witnessing him growing up, for example, is something that I've like radically change my mind about. So as I move into, you know, it's like the next phase of my career, there are a couple of things that stand out to me. You know, it's like one, as an executive, radically prioritizing the things that I think are most important. The moments between my son's grandparents and him, uh, I think are radically important to me. And that is really, you know, it's like my number one priority and my uh, my number one privilege that I want to, uh, that I want to prioritize. In addition to that, I've really missed being closer to startups, investing in them directly, either through funds or time, but working with a more diverse range of teams at various sizes, stages, and and industries is is something that really attracts me as well and where I'll likely be continuing my path. So working with folks locally over here, but also still back in the Bay, I'm doing some angel investing. I'm advising some companies here and there, but mostly enjoying kissing a lot of boo-boos and changing. <laughs> diapers and and taking little walks, going to the petting zoo. You know, like all of these things are uh, are wildly exciting. One closing question: If you could ask one thing uh, the audience in relation to uh, what we spoke of today, one thing that they could get started on, what would it be? You know, it's like prioritization as a topic. If you would apply the same radical prioritization as you do for your teams to your own life, you know, it's like what would end up first? And are you really being honest about yourself with that when you remove all external factors? That's a good question that I've been asking myself very often recently. Love it. 
Well, thank you again, Renata, for your time. I, I loved our conversation. I really resonate with the twists and turns and evolution of your career journey. So thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. That wraps up another episode of Design to Be Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you're curious to learn more about Design to Be, head over to designtobe.com. That is D-E-S-I-G-N-T-O-B-E.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you may listen. Or share this episode with a fellow designer, your team, or on social. These are all excellent ways to support the show. And as always, thanks so much for listening.